The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theinnseattle.org. Hey, how's everybody doing? Yeah, woo! All right. Um, what are some things you guys are most excited about for fall? What does fall? Football? Yeah, it's exciting. Anything else? What? Pumpkin bread, all things pumpkin. Jackets. <laughs> we all love wearing jackets. <laughs> all right, I'm excited for fall. I love fall. It means um, the leaves are turning and all things pumpkin and the return of students. It's very exciting for us. It's a little bit boring around the human office. I can only listen to Sherm's stories so many times. So it's nice to have the rest of you around. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Janie. I'm one of the people that's on staff here at UMIN. Um, and last week, if you were here, Ryan got us started with a series that we're going through in September called uh, What's Stopping You? Getting Past Ourselves on the Road of Faith. When it comes to roadblocks in our faith journey, often we're the ones that get in our own way. So last week, Ryan looked at the disciple Peter and how guilt and shame kind of prevented him from um, going further on his, on his faith journey um, and being connected to Jesus. So this week, we're actually going to go further back to the Old Testament. I know you guys are like, oh, but it's great. The Old Testament is great. I can't say that enough. I love it. It gives us some amazing pictures of God. I highly recommend it. So tonight we're going to look at one of those. Um, and we're going to look at one of the ways that we tend to sabotage ourselves when it comes to our um, the journey of our faith, and that is with comparison. Um, have you guys ever, maybe you remember this when you were a kid, but have you ever seen kids playing and they'll be peacefully playing with some toy until some other kid comes in and they start playing with another toy and all of a sudden they're like, I want that one. And they'll come over and they'll start, you know, getting really upset. And they, they had no desire to have that toy until somebody else actually had that toy. You guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah, that's kind of the whole comparison thing. We want what they have. And I actually have a clip to show you to illustrate that. Um, it's from 30 Rock television show. I don't know if you guys are uh, fans of it. It's one of my favorite shows. I really relate to Liz Lemon. My life is way too much like hers. I'm surrounded by crazy people most of the time. Not just Ryan Church, but probably mostly. So, anyways, basically, they're on a television show, and the two characters in this clip are Tracy and Jenna. Both of them are millionaire TV stars. They can have anything they want, but they have, there is one available gray hooded sweatshirt, only one available. Jenna has it, so Tracy desperately wants it. So take a look. Hello. Good sweatshirt to you. How are you sweatshirting this sweatshirt? Is everything all right, Tracy? I want that sweatshirt. No. You can't take this away from me like you took away my show and my grandmother's jewelry chest. Was I supposed to throw up in something of mine? You gave this to me. And I could take it back. I'm the star here. And if there's only one sweatshirt, the star should have it. Look how great it is. Let me just hold it for one second. Well, okay, but just one second. You'll never get her. Stop! Sweatshirty is a boy! Miss Lemon, 
So that's just a small example of comparison. Someone else has it, so I want it. All about Tracy's like, look how gray it is. Let's just be some highlight to make the sweatshirt be what we want. For whatever reason, if somebody else has it, we think, well, I need that. I have to have that because somebody else has it. So that's what we're going to take a look at. Um, but before we look in the scripture, I want to stop a minute and just pray for our time tonight. Holy God, we thank you that you are in our midst. We thank you that you are present with us, and we pray that you would make yourself known to us, um, that we could know you in our hearts, that we could hear you with our ears, God. And I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable to you um, as we dig into your word. Be with us now. In your holy name, amen. So I want to give you a quick recap of the stories of what has happened before what we look at. We're actually going to look at a, a story in 1 Samuel. And um, this is one of the most important stories in the history of the Old Testament. You might not have ever heard it before, but it is one of the most important things that ever happened to the nation of Israel. So let's do sprint before through the first few books first. Um, so the Hebrew people, their descendants, Hebrew people also means Israel, it's the same thing. They're descendants of this dude named Abraham. And God, they're God's chosen people. God made a covenant with them, a binding agreement, that they would be blessed by God and they would be a blessing to the world. They eventually end up being slaves and um, in Egypt. That whole thing with Moses before Pharaoh, let my people go, that whole thing. Um, God frees them from slavery in Egypt, and then they move into a land that God had promised to them to be the nation of Israel. That's where they start becoming um, who they are. That takes us to 1 Samuel. See, that was a quick sprint. And they're making a slow transition into a nation. But there are a few things that make them different. There's a bunch of nations around them, but there's a few things that set them apart from everybody else. And one of the most important things is they don't have a central ruler. They don't have a king over them like all the rest of the nations do. They have this priest named Samuel. It's a guy the book's named after. And he would travel around from tribe to tribe, and he would help them with their day-to-day life and settle disagreements and help them follow after God. So God told them, God told Israel, I want to be your king. That's what's going to set you apart from everybody else. Part of the covenant was that every person in Israel would have access to their king because it was God as opposed to some king in a palace far away. Everybody would be linked to their king. It wouldn't be a flawed monarch, but their ruler, their champion would be God who had led them out of slavery in Egypt, who was with them defending them in the midst of battles that they were having to fight, who had poured abundant spiritual and physical blessings upon them. God would be their king. So it's really important to know the background of that as we look at this story in 1 Samuel chapter 8. And as we do, remember that covenant, God is the king over you. Um, so 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 8, starting in verse 4. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you're old. That's a really nice way to start. You're old, Sam. Um, and your sons do not follow your ways. His sons were corrupt. Now appoint a king to us, a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king, as they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt 
until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and tell them and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Um, so Samuel told them all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king. And then Samuel kind of gives them a big list. Of, this is what's going to happen to you if you have a king. He's going to force you to have a military, and he's going to take away from your families, and he's going to take, um, he's going to take from everything that you have. So he, he says all that, and we're going to, we're going to look at that a little bit later, but I want to skip ahead to verse 19. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. So why is this such an important moment in Israel's history? Why is this such a big deal? This moment when they make a request to God that basically they want to change this covenant, this agreement that they've got. It's actually a common refrain for Israel. We want what they have. This is a dialogue I imagine. God saying, wait, wait, have I not blessed you with abundant blessings? Well, yeah. Have I not followed through to release you from bondage and slavery? A place where a king held you in slavery? Well, yeah. I mean, all that's great, God, but we want more. We still want what they've got. Sounds like Israel is embarrassed, right? They're comparing themselves. They were like, we want the gray sweatshirt because they have it. And the problem with this monarchy isn't political. It's not a political problem. God says this problem is theological. They are rejecting me. And this is not a new characteristic for Israel. And really, it's not a new characteristic for humanity. If you can relate, if you can't relate to the struggle, I would say you aren't human. I happen to know for a fact Every person in this room has difficulty not comparing what they've got, who they are, their lives, everything to people around you. At this point, I kind of feel like that's what Facebook was invented for, to constantly be disappointed when we compare ourselves to everybody else. I once said this, and people were not that happy, but I think it's true. Comparison is the drug of the disappointed, and Facebook is your dealer. Right? That's the place that we always go to compare ourselves. Now, I'm not a big Facebook user. I'll admit to that. I have a page, but um, I only go there once every, like, four months. I've never had a um, status, and I've never posted pictures. And I have a few friends, mostly family, so I can see pictures of my nieces and nephews and friends who live far away. But that's pretty much it. So we'll say I'm not a huge Facebook user, but I have to show you something that was sent to me about a month ago. Becky Riggers, um, many of you might know her. She used to be on our staff. But she sent me this email because it was on her Facebook page. The subject line is, ha, 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 help a friend. So that's me. That's my Facebook page, help a friend. She has 27 friends. Suggest friends for her. <laughs> the point of that is to show Becky what a loser I am. What the what, Zuckerberg? More like Zuckerberg. I don't know. That's going to be on the internet. I'm going to like get taken in the middle of the night. I don't know anybody wants to know that. But that's really what our culture is letting us know. Uh, compare yourself to other people. Feel bad about your lives. Don't be satisfied with anything ever. 
obviously this is just a symptom of a greater problem because it's something that I think is pervasive in our culture, in our world, and it's not new, right? This what's happened in First Samuel, this was thousands of years ago, and they were still like, we want what they have. We compare our miseries to other people's. We compare our joys, our physical appearance, our relationship status, our spirituality, our academics, our future job prospects. There is nothing outside the realm of what we compare. And that is the way that we view our lives. That's how we view ourselves, is by comparing ourselves to other people. So what do we do this? How do we stop comparing? Well, the reality is we have to be disciplined to stop I'm serious. We have to actually practice it to stop the voices in our head from telling us that we're not good enough, we're not smart enough, doggone it, nobody likes us. Maybe that means spending less time on Facebook. I'm not anti-Facebook, but seriously, we could all chill a little bit when it comes to how much time we spend on it. Maybe it means affirming the things that you see in other people that you really, really want Instead of coveting it, telling other people, I noticed this about you, and it is great. Maybe it means making a list of all of the things that we are grateful for in our lives. But the simplest answer is that we need to look up instead of looking side to side. We need to look vertical, look at God, instead of looking at everybody else around us. Cultivate our relationship with God. We have to bring ourselves to discover our worth, our value, the love that God has for us that we're not going to find in this world. There's a couple things from this story in 1 Samuel that I want to emphasize that I think were, were downfalls for Israel that we need to pay attention to. The first one was Israel did not trust. The central element of the covenant that Israel had with God was trust. They should look to God in any and every circumstance. God would provide for them. But instead of looking up, they looked around at all these nations around them and said, we want what they have. And what they ended up doing is they adopted what everybody else had. They adopted cultures. They adopted religions. They were worried about threats that were coming. They looked at what was compelling, what was attractive, what was trendy, and said, we're going to bring that into our lives. And Israel did this over and over and over. Literally, that is the story of the Old Testament. Choosing all this stuff instead of choosing God. The question is, is God going to give me what he promised? Is God going to give me what I want? He gave it to her. He gave it to him. Is he going to give it to me? When we compare, we lack trust in God. But God has our best interests at heart. And we make decisions based on anxiety and what if instead of trust. When there are things that we really want, especially when it comes to relationship status, we often quote Psalm 37, 4, which says, um, take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. That's great. I think that, obviously, that's great theology. It comes from the Bible. But what happens is, is we make it our own and we flip it around and we say, when God gives me the desires of my heart, then I will take delight in the Lord. Then I will trust the Lord once I see that God is giving me all the things that I really want. You need to ask yourself, has God already done enough in your life so that you can trust him to continue to be faithful? That's what trust, covenant trust looks like, God's faithfulness that will always be there. So Israel lacked trust in their covenant with God. 
and they also lacked patience. What they, what God was doing with Israel, creating this new nation, right? Everything looked a little bit different. It looked different than the rest of the world. And that meant it didn't look, it didn't move as quickly as Israel thought it would move. It wasn't happening fast enough. And they were unwilling to be patient for God's transformation. And God's transformation takes time. So they're super hasty in their decision. And Samuel actually warns them. So let's look at what he says in 1 Samuel 8. Um, he said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve as his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage, your male and female servants, servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will become slaves." So what does Samuel say over and over again in there? Take. Yeah, look at how many times he says, your king is going to take from you. And not only that, you will become slaves. Right? They have been released from slavery in Egypt, and they're willingly, they're actually making a request to become slaves again. Impatience is need for immediate result, no matter what, the horrible outcome might be. I need it right now. And we become patient, impatient because we look at other people's lives, we compare ourselves, and we say, okay, God, I need transformation now. I need my life to change right now. But what would immediate change really do? What if we were really transformed, like snap of the fingers? Would you have any real investment? Would you really be connected to God? No, it would be like getting cash from an ATM or having a genie. Where's the relationship? God wants us to participate in the change that's happening in our lives, not react to it. God wants us to participate in the transformation that he's doing in our lives, not just react. If we stop comparing ourselves, the question we ask won't be, when is my life going to change? Hurry up already. We stop comparing, the question will be, Where is God? Where is God and where can I get on board with what God is already doing, even in me? I promise you that question might mean that things might go a little bit slower, but there will be change. And it will be radical change. And it will be eternal change. Israel's struggle with the covenant was with trust. And their struggle was with patience. And they lacked contentment in their circumstances. They wanted what other people have. No matter what our life circumstances look like, we always covet what other people have. I'll use myself as an example. As a woman over 30, most of my friends at this point are married and many of them have kids. And I can't tell you how many times they have looked at my life, compared their lives to mine and said, oh my gosh, your life is so better than mine. I don't get any sleep because my kids are keeping me up all night. I despise my husband right now so much I can't even look at him. And like financially, we're struggling. So your life is so much better. And what do you think my response is today? You're right, your life sucks. My life is way better than yours. No, that's not what I say. Actually, what I think is, wow, your life is so much better than mine. Because I assume you don't have to deal with the loneliness that I deal with. You have someone to suffer with you in your hurts and celebrate your joys and 
You probably would have been able to go with someone to the wedding I went to last weekend, which is the bajillionth wedding I've gone to by myself, right? I have a hard time being content because I compare my life to other people's circumstances. Now, I want to say something about contentment. Contentment does not mean apathy. It does not mean complacency. In fact, I think people who are content are some of the most passionate, most active people in their faith journey. Contentment simply means that you are okay with who God has created you to be. You're at peace with that you're set apart. You're different, right? That is the covenant that God had with Israel. You're going to be set apart. When we, com- when we play the comparison game, we actually reject the identity we have of having a covenant with God that says, I'm going to be set apart from everybody else. I'm going to be different, and I'm going to be okay. And what we do instead is we choose what will look good, what's going to impress other people. But the problem with that is that we will never be good enough. We're always going to have to do more. We'll never be enough. God, why didn't you make me smart enough, pretty enough, or charismatic enough? I am not enough in comparison to everybody else. A contentment is being okay with not being enough because it's Jesus in your life that makes you enough. That is what a content person knows. And we are created good. God made you wonderful, talented, gifted. And if you look up in your relationship with God, instead of looking around at everyone else, you would be able to know that, really know that, that God is enough. The Apostle Paul knew this. He wrote the book of Philippians from prison. And here's what he says in chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. So Paul is able to be content in prison. That's where he's writing this. And why? Because he's capable of whatever life might throw his way through Christ being present in him. That's contentment that kills the comparison cycle. Not being everything, but being enough because of Jesus' presence in our lives. Comparison leads to bondage. And getting ourselves outside the madness of that requires that we stop looking over the fence where the grass looks greener. Not that it is, but it looks greener. Stop looking over the fence and look up. Look up at God's presence in our lives where we can discover what it looks like to have trust, to have patience, and to know contentment. To finish up, I want to return to that passage in 1 Samuel. And Israel says, God, you're not enough. We want what they've got. Ultimately, like all scripture, this passage really just tells us something amazing about God. So what happens? Israel says, we don't want you as our king. And God doesn't say, yeah, that's cool. I was done anyways. Our relationship was over. God says, I'm going to keep loving you, even though you rejected me. Not only that, he actually changes the covenant. Throughout all of scripture, God always has this ideal of who he's created people to be. And when they're unable to live into that, God says, okay, I'm going to come down to where you are. I'm going to meet you. And I'm going to help you work into who I, what I wanted for you all along. And that's what he does. 
He brings a new definition of kingship to the world. Israel gets King David, who is referred to all over the Bible as a king after God's own heart. And under him, Israel became this powerful, thriving nation. So God says, okay, I'm going to give you a king that will be just like me. And then God takes it to the next level. Because he sends his son Jesus to usher in a new idea of kingdom like none that this world has ever seen. A king that is not going to take, but a king who gives. A king who doesn't make slaves, a king who redeems. A king who gives his life so that all of us would be able to know the love and the grace that God wants for us in this covenant where he pours abundant blessings on us that no earthly king could ever possess. Jesus wants you to know that he is enough in your life. Will you let him be all the enough that you need? Gracious God, we thank you that you are all the king that we need. We thank you that you are willing to take us through small steps when we know we can't be everything that you created us to be, God. You meet us where we are, and you transform us, and you change us so that we can live into what you wanted for us all along. And God, we desire to give up this cycle of comparison, of looking at everybody else to determine our worth, and instead knowing we only need to look to you to know what true contentment and trust and patience really is in our lives. We thank you for Jesus. We pray that we would be able to make him king of our lives in every way. In your holy name. Amen.